my name is Adam Hanover and this is the Boxing Coaches Podcast. We take a look into the craft and the science of boxing coaching, asking the ultimate question, can we do it better? The podcast delves into areas like skill acquisition, sports science, developing effective coaching relationships, reflective practice and challenging the norms and traditions of boxing coaching. All this whilst tackling the nitty gritty of our day-to-day boxing practice. So if you're a boxing coach, a boxer or a parent or simply interested in learning through sport, then square yourself away for 20 to 40 minutes and let's talk boxing. Okay, guys, welcome everyone to episode number 39 of the Boxing Coaches podcast. Today, we're doing that age-old pub quiz or that pub conversation, which is nature versus nurture in boxing. And uh, really excited to have uh, a guest on uh, to speak about this, uh, Ross Clark from Lawrence ABC in Limington, which is the Southern Counties. Ross, how are you, mate? You well? Yeah, good, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Um, obviously, we've been, it's been sort of a long time coming, this, isn't it? And we've been uh, having a few back and forth about um, what we'd like to talk about and uh, what it's going to look like. And, and finally, we're here. So I'm sat in my kitchen. Whereabouts are you now? I'm just sat in my room. <laughs> Self-isolated. <laughs> Self-isolating, yeah. <laughs> right. Okay, mate. So, uh, yeah, if you want to just tell everyone a little bit more about yourself. Yeah, yeah I've been with Lawrence Boxing Club for about 13, 14 years. Um, I took up the sport quite late. Um, I was 19 when I started. I wanted to start um, a lot younger, but um, my mum wasn't very keen on me um, joining the sport. So obviously when I was a self-reliant adult, I was able to do what I wanted. Um, and then um, went into football coaching for about six years, um, but boxed alongside that as well. Um, only had nine competitive bouts um, and one white collar. But I think uh, I took my travels took me um, to North America as well. So I had a bit of a sporadic boxing career because i went to canada twice um i went to chicago to coach as well um, and also being at university sort of split that up a little bit as well um uh not coaching football anymore uh but partly because um it it took me away from the boxing club uh, and and lawrence boxing club started to sort of slide a little bit we had two competitive boxers and we were on the verge of closing actually the council were looking at it thinking we're not being used effectively so they're looking they were looking at taking the premises away from us which is part of why I got back into the club um I, you know it was something that gave me so much and so now we've got a thriving beginners program we've got about 12 to 14 competitive boxes and we're back on the map which I'm, I'm really 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 happy with I do the matchmaking um I'm the head coach and I also do like all the secretary paperwork so I wear many hats for the club um which is quite time consuming but I do love it it sounds very familiar mate it sounds very familiar <laughs> And I feel for you. Um, so, what about your psychology? Yeah, it's interesting that we've we've um, sort of come at this because we we both have different backgrounds. Um, and I was talking to you about this. So, you've obviously had a more hard science background at university. You studied sports science, whereas I came from a, a sports sociology background. I studied you know sports policy within the government, um, social issues like social inclusion policies with sport. Um, but I think as time's gone on, you've obviously become an educator, so you've become a little bit more towards my side about you know social construction people can learn they they, they are there is changeability whereas I've become more interested in human nature um, and biology so I think it gives us a real balance when we're talking about this mm-hmm. absolutely mate absolutely so what we decided to do was to um, kind of look at the nature nurture side kind of a portion one to you so you're going to start with the nurture yeah and I'm going to 
the nature but obviously we're going to have a little conversation around that and i'm sure people listening coaches boxers parents whoever listening now um you know there'll be certain areas think yep i've had that conversation before yeah. um hopefully we take it in different areas and maybe we take it in in areas that might be a bit of a echo chamber but it's definitely um that age old pub conversations i mentioned earlier so without further ado mate so nurture yeah, thanks, yeah. Um, well, first off, I think, you know, anyone listening, I think they've got to chip in wherever they can, because this is something, you know, neither of us, neither of us are absolute experts on this. We're, we're, we are, you know, we're educated, but we're, we're hobby enthusiasts. But also it's real muddy waters. There's so many variables involved with this topic that it's a real rat's nest. Um, but uh, sorry, mate, yeah, you can say. No, I just, I just like, enjoyed the rat's nest. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead, mate. Um, so what I'm going to do is I'm going to go through uh, a sort of social, psycho- psychological, technical, physical um, uh, elements of nurture. And then also you chip in wherever you feel. But it gives a little bit of a breakdown for the coaches, anyone listening um, on how I think it applies. So social is where I'm going to start because it's obviously it's where I started. The gym culture that we have, we really want it to be welcoming and positive than when the lads come into the gym. Everyone shakes hands. Not now, obviously. Um, but it, I think that stems that I brought in that rule that everyone comes in, they shake hands with everyone in the gym. And we also make sure that anyone who comes to the gym as a guest for sparring, everyone goes up and welcomes them and says hello, because it's really important. Um, you know, personally for me, when I first went to the boxing club, you know, I was 19, but I was breaking it. I'm not going to lie. I'd been into the gym before um, for a box fit class and that's how I got into the session, but it's a bit different. And when you go into a gym, um, to a box fit class, there's mixed ages, there's men and women. Um, but when you go into a class and the first time you go through that door, you can hear the bags rattling, you can hear the skipping ropes whistling, you know, leather on leather. And, you know, it was frightening. And as soon as I opened the door, um, Lee Woolen, who was one of our boxers, a, a lot of the Southern Counties coaches might remember Lee. He came straight up to me and he, he offered his hand to me and said, hello, mate, how you doing? Always, always good to, always good to see new faces. And immediately I was like, oh, it was such a relief. And I was welcomed in the gym immediately. So I wanted to sort of pass that on because I feel that they are intimidating places, boxing clubs, but sort of for no reason, because most of the people I know in the, in the game, they're just, they're wonderful people. Um, so I don't know if you've got any things that you set up in your gym to make it, you know, like a welcoming environment. Yeah, I mean, we, we have our, our ARC um, policy uh, at Eastbourne and then we have former at DICE, you know, which um, we spoke for in previous podcasts um but yeah they're really important you know for example arc that arthur respects but how do you live that how do you breathe that and i think um just a simple thing about shaking hands when you're coming through the door it does break break the ice and it does show that people are human and once you realize that people are human and not these wrecking balls that are here to kill you yeah then, then learning can learning can start from that position you know so i think that's a really good approach you got there mate yeah, yeah, you know, and, and we have little icebreakers as well. We sort of can play little fun games, um, particularly with the young ones. You can do things like um, they get two options. You get a point if you score the same as someone else. So you say to your mate, um, Xbox or PlayStation, you know, um, ch- ma- mashed potato or chips, and they answer what they prefer. If they pick your answer, um, you know, they get a point. And it's a silly game, but it's a fun way of getting to know someone, you know, mm-hmm. while you're sort of starting off, um, particularly with the young kids. That's a good game. They love it. Um also on the social side um we we're quite strict i've got some great volunteers um who help out but we're quite strict on keeping a clean and an orderly gym um and there's reasons for that but 
there's a little bit of research behind this, which I'd like to sort of go into. Um, sure. So there was some uh, research, a few Dutch researchers. Um, basically, what they did was they picked an alley in Gron- uh, Groningen. Is, am I right in pronouncing that right? Groningen, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what they did was uh, they there were bicycles which commuters used and they were parked in an alleyway. And what they did was they attached flyers to the bikes um, and to the handlebars. So the commuters had to detach their flyers before they could then ride the bikes away. But what the researchers had done, they'd taken the bins away um, so that they either had to carry the flyer home with them or they had to dump it on the floor. Um, and there was a prominent sign within the alleyway. And what the researchers did was they, they used for two different groups, they sprayed it with graffiti and then with another one, they left it completely clean. Um, now, when the alleyway had graffiti in it, it uh, I think it was double the amount of commuters dumped the flyer on the floor rather than taking it with them. Um, and there are some follow-up studies as well uh, which support that. And basically what it is, it's not it's not so much an enforcement. It's it, um, the, the people look after a clean environment through enforcement. It's through the idea of a social norm. So it's the idea that you look around and it's clean and tidy. It's well people look after this place we should too you know this is somewhere where people obey the rules so i think that's really important to set the standard you know we always say leave the gym how you found it because people use the gym after us skipping ropes go away make sure there's no um litter left around cups by the ring it's all tidied away um and i think that's important as well i don't know if you have any sort of rotors in your gym where you get some of the boxes to clean and tidy but that's something we're bringing in we haven't brought it in at the moment well, we have that under respect. Um, one of our behaviours under that is to leave the gym as, as, you, as you see it. So, you know, we're making sure that the gloves are put back on the pegs and the head guards are, are strapped to the, the ring ropes or, or what have you. So, yeah, that kind of thing. But it, it, I think it's interesting to know the actual sort of, you know, the, the science behind why people actually do conform to that. Yeah, it makes sense, doesn't it? It, it does. Make, it makes sense. You know, if you walked into an environment that was untidy, it, was, it wasn't looked after, you know, you wouldn't, you, you wouldn't like to think of that within yourself but you probably would treat it with a little bit less respect mm-hmm. um obviously it wasn't everyone that took which dumped it on who dumped it on the floor but um there was definitely a statistical significance um well anyway but we'll move on to psychology now so the psychological element of our um nur- the nurture side is one of the main things is it's a positive learning environment so when the lads come in um, we allow all the boxes particularly the kids particularly the kids to feel comfortable making mistakes you know, they should enjoy the activity um, and be able to stay motivated within it. The mm-hmm. last thing you want, and, you know, there's a lot of debate, nature, nurture, what's good coaching, what's bad coaching. There's no doubt in my mind that if you slam someone for making mistakes, that's bad coaching. That is bad coaching. You know, you can definitely point out mistakes um, and set practical objectives as to how they can correct them. But if you're just criticising, I don't think there's any place for that, really. Um, and the reason for that is when you think about mistakes and you think about how you learn, you only learn when you're wrong. And that's quite annoying, really, isn't it? But the fact that that is the case means that any mistake that you make needs to be almost welcomed and you need to sort of allow people to, um, you know, feel comfortable with themselves when they, when, when they, um, when they make mistakes. Yeah, and I think your, your language as a coach as well and your attitude and your body language when that, that mistake happens. Yeah. Has to be spot on, doesn't it? it has to really back what your uh, your value is there. Yeah. Um, yeah, and we we had a bit one of my friends who I coached with, um, Dan Fairhurst, he, he's now out out in Vancouver working with the um Van, Vancouver Whitecaps, very good coach. 
um, we sort of had a discussion about striking the right balance between development and winning because there's a lot of talk about development and it's and rightly so but I think sometimes we can lean too far down the development path mm-hmm. and, and our argument was when we had kids who were playing football particularly at a, you know, a, a high, at quite an elite level so academy level um, where they do buy into that philosophy we said that you can't be totally development orientated because the, the kids will lack motivation they'll lose interest and they won't they won't buy into you as well because the kids want to win so it's you're striking the balance between competitive um, competitiveness and a development orientated approach and there was a great um great documentary which i i watched called the edge which was about the england cricket team i've heard a lot about this i've not seen it yet but i have heard it's fantastic yeah oh oh, mate i recommend it really recommend it so they went from number seven in the world and the team were really you know they weren't they they had a lot of potential but they really weren't performing and andy flower came in and he took them i think it was in within two years he took them to number one but it was also the interesting part of that was how he did it um, and there were many ways in how he did it. Um, he took them through, you know, some brutal training regimes. He he felt that shared hardship brings people together, mm-hmm. which I thought was a really good quote of his. Um, and he took them to like the Bavarian mountains and thrashed them with some um, special forces. And some of them were like, <laughs> he thought he was making a big mistake at the time because um, the, the, the cricketers were saying like, what's this got to do with cricket, you know? But afterwards, they said that they just felt like such a team. So they were, they were, they had such a bond through that experience. Um, but also, as the documentary goes on, it starts to break down what happened and what the failures were. Um, as they even because they got to number one, but it didn't last very long. And a lot of what it was about was the players said that they just weren't enjoying their cricket, and they felt that even though they were winning all the time, the coaching staff just they didn't really give a crap about them. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the quotes that Andy Flower made was, um, if, if I had my time again, I'd definitely try and work with the person as much as the player. And that was a really good quote, I thought, because when you're working with boxers, you've got to work hard to know the person, not just the player, because you might be able to create winners. Um, you know, and little little Joe in your gym, he might be 5-0, and and you might think, oh, he's loving it. How can he not love it? He's 5-0. and But the reality, the reality is, if you don't know what makes him tick, then he might be 5-0, and but he might actually not be motivated to perform he might feel like the training regimes are too hard it's brutal the coach doesn't really care about him don't ask about his day you know who he is as a person what he gets up to in his spare time Mm -hmm. so that's really important i think and that's something we always try and do i always try and ask you know my lads what they do in their spare time what what school they go to what they study what they're interested in what their hobbies are um because it just gets you you know it creates such a good relationship with the kids and it you'll enjoy it a lot more i think as well when you get to know the people I agree. I agree. that, And that's something I've been very sort of uh, cognizant of as well and, and really intentional about just asking little questions like that. How, you know, how you been, what you've up to, you know, how you get on in school, little things like that. And to, when I first really started this three or four years ago, that kind of approach, it, 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 I found it wasn't me. And um, I found it a real effort to try and make that, that connection. But the more I've done it now, the more it feels second nature. And, and you pointed out there, it makes you feel good as well. It's very reciprocal in terms of yeah. the information, you're, in terms of that re- relationship you're getting back from them as well. So it's something we need to be a lot more intentional, I think, about in the sport. Yeah. And I think, you know, like, like we were saying about the balance, striking the balance, because we were getting some bad results last season. And um, I think maybe we were a little bit, a little bit too soft. Mm-hmm. 
so we, we we did set some standards and set um you know draw a line in the sand and the boys have really performed this year unfortunately the season's been um drawn to a close early but we we were really doing well um and it's just just a shame that had to that had to happen sure yeah absolutely yeah you know you're getting on that crest of a wave and then suddenly it's kiboshed by something you know this pandemic yeah um anyway so yeah we're going to move into sort of the technical and physical so i've put the i've grouped those two together Mm -hmm. um and i want to start off by just talking about the technical side and also thought i'd just go through national styles because there is obviously if i was to ask you about national styles i'm sure you'd know it because there are cliches out there about you know if you're an english boxer that you know you you're considered to be probably quite a smart educated boxer with a good jab mainly straight punches Um, americans they're sort of um, known to be slick and stylish and street smart. South Americans are tough fighters who work at a high pace. Sure. They're punches, they carry power in both hands. Um, they like to hook and they work the body. Cubans, you might, cons- you know, you might think um, classy, counter punches, superb footwork. And then you'd have the cliche of the uh, European boxer or Eastern European boxer, sorry, who would be very upright, um, high guard, technically proficient, but stiff and cumbersome. So you think of like Klitschko's, um, maybe Baterbiev, boxers like that. They're strong. They're technically very good, but they're not the classiest boxers. And I think when you think about those styles, what would your what would your um, sort of response to those be? Well, um, everything you've said there, I completely agree with. Um, you know, the English one is always, especially the amateur, very good at moving in straight lines, in and out, in and out. Great jab, letting up the attacks, maybe phased attacks. But as soon as you close them down, very poor at moving off to the sides. Uh, yeah, you know, I completely agree with you. The Cubans, well balanced, you know, dancers. It's more of an art form than a science. Whereas maybe in boxing uh, in England, it's more of a science than it is uh, an art form. You know, mm. um, perhaps the Russians somewhere in between. Very, very, um, you know, almost in what they do, it's very aggressive but calculated and um, and intentful. You know what they do. So yeah, I think a lot of a lot of countries now, um, you know, they they do have their their labels. Although I had this conversation with an Italian. Um, uh, a friend of mine called Gina Ligabui and he said to me that um, I always said to him back in the day when you had an Italian you knew what you got they were going to move their feet and dance around the ring um, and sort of flick out the shots but you can't tell anymore so I think they're changing but there still is at that kind of um, label on on a lot of those um, nations so yeah I agree with what you said mate yeah I mean like cliches are there because there's going to be truth in them but sure. you could think like um Golovkin's not a typical Eastern European boxer, you know. Um, he's got a little bit more style. He moves his head. He's really aggressive, comes forward. But you could also think of someone like James DeGale, slick and stylish. He's not your typical British boxer. He'd be more more in the American category. So, you know, there's always people that break the mould. But, you know, generally, there's truth in the cliches because it's, it's probably how we coach them, isn't it? Yeah, it must do. It must be. It's, you know, there's a lot of factors there, I think. But ultimately, surely, it's that um, a lot of it comes from that nurture side, yeah. Yeah. Um, moving on to the next technical part, which is basically about talent development, mm-hmm. um, particularly in the early stages. I really want to get your opinion on this because a lot of what I've been reading contradicts a lot of what we do, both in boxing, but also in football as well, which is obviously um, an area which I coached in for a long time. Mm-hmm. So in the early stages of talent development, in, ta- in talent development, um, there was a study by Victoria University, but it also correlates with a lot of psychological research which i've been looking at um, and in the early stages boxers essentially should be provided with high levels of instruction 
um, you know, support and encouragement with, with a positive focus. But it's the idea that the kids don't know what they're doing. You know, you, you can't put a kid. And when we talk about skills bounce, we think there's a lot of coaches who have been out there and they've commented on the group and they said, you know, it's ridiculous that they can't coach during a skills bout because um, the kids, they, they have no idea what they're doing. And I'd agree with that. I think I think that's wrong. I think we get it backwards. I think we put the cart before the horse on that one. The kids need instruction. I think you need to involve them in the decision making. And we we don't want to be overbearing on the kids. We need to give them some chance to, you know, self-analyze, question them, get them to provide answers. But there's definitely a little bit of a misunderstanding where we say, you know, go off and do it on your own, see how it goes, because you'll figure it out. Mm -hmm. You know, what was your opinion on that? Um, yeah, so I can't remember which episode it was. We talked about skills bouts. Um, yeah, there is there is a, a big gap there, isn't there? I mean, I I kind of like the fact that there there shouldn't be any, any coaching, but more not because of the fact that they don't know what they're doing, but more towards what the reason they're in there for. You know, what's the outcome? And the outcome is we don't want it to be wham bam, thank you, ma'am, and smashing the hell out of each other. You know, they want to have yeah. a good experience where they can think for themselves without having people shouting in their ear roll and, and everyone screaming at them to to be robots. So yeah. that kind of um, taking you know taking the uh, the reins off them slightly but I do agree you know there are, there are some kids that go in there and even when there's not no chatting that looks like they're not knowing what they're doing so it, it's I think the problem is there's no real right answer to it because no, because right. it's too fluid it's too dynamic and the two kids that go in there um, you know there's too many different variables with them you know what their parents are like you know is their parent a vicarious parent who's trying to live through them is their coach you know a bully or is their coach you know, maybe too over nurturing and, 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 you know, not tough on them enough. So there's lots of different things, but I do like the idea. Um, and I think there's a lot of science that backs it, but in reality, does it always work? No, I don't think it does. Um, but I think there's got to be a, a balance struck in the, in the middle somewhere. That's, you know, and um, perhaps that's not an answer that is concrete enough, but it's such a fluid thing, mate. Would you reckon? Yeah. 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 And, and sort of talking about what you mentioned about, um, if, if coaches were to shout, it might encourage the boxers. You want it to be skill set. There was actually um, a contradictory um, example of that uh, where my, one of my boys boxed at Sporting, Sporting Ring Show in Camden mm -hmm. and he boxed a lad from White Hart Lane. And obviously you can't say anything during the skills battle, uh -huh. but all they did was they were, they were bang at it from, from, the, from the first bell and they just, it was a, it, you know, it would have been a cracking contest, a proper bout, but it was hard for the referee to manage. Now, these lads were only like 13 years old, so they weren't, you know, it's probably harder to manage a skills bout when they're 15, 16. Mm -hmm. But if I was able to coach, I think I could have taken, I could have taken a bit of pressure off the referee. I could have said to the lad, you know, get on the back foot a little bit more, work the jab, you know, just work the jab, you know, keep the power down. And I could have, and he might have responded better to my coaching than the referee's coaching. Mm -hmm. Sometimes I think, you know, we think, oh, you know, the coaches might inflame the situation and rile the boxer up. Whereas, you know, I think the alternative can be the case as well. They can actually control the boxer. Mm -hmm. Yeah, completely. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think a nice strategy that we can do there is that when the bout starts, instead of it just being um, the two boxers go to the middle and the referee gives the information, why don't both the coaches get in the ring at the same time as well? Be part of that conversation. So that it looks like there's group accountability. And if there are, and then I think if the boxers were to start knocking hell out of each other, it would be like, hold on. All the people that are yeah. responsible for the safety of these guys were in their ring at that time. So I think just getting everyone in the ring, is, it's almost like, a, you know, like you mentioned when you all walk into the gym and you shake hands. It's a bit like that. 
rather than standing off each other. So, you know, it's let's focus on skill here. We're all accountable here um, rather than, you know, one getting the hell kicked out of them and not wanting to actually have, have the next bout and you're losing. To- yeah, that's quite a nice idea. You know, it, it, you, you would you would have to set a different rule for the skills bounce mm-hmm. so that coaches were allowed into the ring. Yeah, that's, but I think that's, start, yeah. that's not a yeah, but that's not that's not a bad idea. I think that I think that could that could be something that could work. Yeah, possibly, possibly. Who knows? Yeah. <laughs> maybe maybe yeah. some of them, some of them, maybe some of them not. Yeah. Well, some of the lads probably should never be having skills back, should they? You know. Yeah, we yeah yeah. Some of them just need to be um, unbridled a little bit earlier, don't they? Yeah. Um, anyway, moving on to the next part. Mm-hmm. Um, I was looking in into. I mean, there's so much you can go into on the technical side and the physical side but so I don't want to go into too much depth but I was looking at deliberate practice mm-hmm. um, so how we coach um, so what sort of want to break down what deliberate practice is um, how it differs from normal practice um, and how we can implement it effectively in our gym um, so obviously number one what is it so deliberate practice you you I define it as something that is systematic and it's goal driven um, and how it differs from normal practice, to put an example in, um, I'd say that I'll give two opposing examples and they're both going to be me. So if I'm working on the bag, obviously there's a lot of contradict, um, you know, there's a lot of um, debate around bag work. Mm-hmm. But let's just say I'm working on the bag on my own to start with. Um, if I'm just work, if I'm practicing, I'm being lazy. Maybe I'm just sort of moving around the bag. I'm not moving my feet very much. I'm, I'm flicking the shots out. My hands are dropping low. Um, I'm throwing body shots, I'm throwing hooks, I'm throwing straight shots. Every now and then I'm glancing into the ring to watch the sparring. That would be, that would be an example of poor practice. Um, deliberate practice would be me going into the bag and thinking, right, this round, I'm going to work the jab. And I'm just going to work the jab. I'm going to have my hands up. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to send that jab out like a laser beam. So fast, straight, right down the middle. And it's going to punch through the target. And then I'm going to move off. Every time, every time I throw a jab, I'm going to move off. I might put a bit of phase work in. I'm on my toes. I'm moving in and out. So there's actually a little bit of um, a target to what I'm doing. And it, you know, it does require some discipline um, and some concentration. But that would be the difference. Um, and, and an example of how you can implement this in our gym, and you learn this on your coaching courses, so it's not anything that nobody does, you know, doesn't know already, would be something like themed bag work. Now, it would have to be monitored, I think. I think that has to be monitored. You can't leave kids on their own. So you'd you'd go around and you'd say, um, right, this round is going to be phase work, one, two, back in with a jab. And I want to see it done at a high pace. And you can sell that as well. Because I think as coaches, we are salesmen. You know, we're selling an idea and a concept. Mm -hmm. You know, we have to motivate the boxers. We have to get that message across. One thing that will demotivate a boxer is a coach that looks like they don't care and they don't want to be there, you know monitor we all had a teacher like that haven't we monotone lecturing saying things in the same tone at the same pace you know you've got to you've got to get the boys up for it checking the phone in the pocket every 30 seconds (laughs) yeah yeah absolutely i mean if you're a matchmaker that might be a little bit different but yeah um and shadow boxing as well is a good thing to theme you know there was a uh, there was a you were chatting about that the other day about you know people just going it's, it's a bit lazy just to go right lads you know get going let's have a shadow box and it can be good because it's it's um almost a routine and routines can be good for boxers but sometimes you want to say right now you're boxing against the southpaw you know he's he's tall and lanky and he's got a strong backhand how are you going to box against that and you see the boys they start thinking and you can go around question how are you going to box against that how are you going to box against that and they can give you little answers as well and then there could be another example of um Right, you've got a, a, a small squat boxer. 
He's got dynamite in both hands. Um, how are you going to box against him? You know, and, and Chris Daly was good. I watched Chris Daly um, as a Southern Counties coach, and he had a lot of good ideas um, with that. And I picked up a lot of good, um, a lot of good little tips from him, particularly on themed work. But if you were to um, give me an example, can you give me any examples that you would use in your gym? Um, yeah. So, I mean, th- there's lots of different things. It depends on your approach that you can have. So, you know, it, it can be right here is your opponent. Um, but it could also be problem-based as well. So as opposed to here's your opponent, it could be, right, here's an issue. The issue is you've been caught with a shot um, and, you know, you've been caught with, a, let's say, a lead hook to the body and you can't move your feet. What are you going to do now? Show me how you move now. How do your defences change as a result? Um, the opponent's constantly trying to hold you, step on your feet, spoil you, do all that kind of thing. But the referee's not really giving him the warnings. What are you going to do now? So, you know, kind of all that messy learning stuff as well um, is, is, is kind of, a, I think it's a different a different approach. Um, but one thing also like doing, and I had this conversation via an email today, actually, with a lot of coach developers, was um, about what about yourself? You know, the bag is you or your shadow boxing opponent is you. So... Yeah, I saw that one. That was good. So what you, you know, so it could be right. First round, you're going to box against yourself, and you're going to exploit yourself. And the second round is, well, what are your strengths? You need to deal with your own strengths now. You know, are you good at coming forward? How are you going to deal with that? You know, so so as you mentioned, that's you know, it's that very much that deliberate practice. You know, there's the end in mind, but you're really focusing um, intentionally on those processes that actually get you to that end. End in mind, you know, a little bit more towards the Anders Ericsson type thing, if, if you if you will, with the ten thousand hours of practice. Yeah, yeah, but with variability thrown in as well, which I think is, is yeah. important. So you know, which you do with different themes and different problems and stuff like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, that's good, mate. That's good. Um, one of the things I wanted to just quickly touch on, the last thing technically was what you mentioned in one of your previous podcasts, which was um, internal and external focus. I think you called yep. it. Um, and it was to do with feedback, um, particularly what the GB coaches gave us feedback and how they they made. I mean, you if you just go through it for me, and I'll I'll give you an example of you know how I've how I've implemented that and into my coaching. So I thought that was really really good. It really sort of made me think twice about how I how I coach. Um, so in, internal versus external is is more about you know where are where is the actual focus. So um, if you are um, if you're boxing. Uh, for example, the coaches are saying, um, keep your hands up. That's an internal focus because your hands is a, is a part of your limbs. But if you say, keep your gloves up, that's something slightly external to you. And um, yeah, the, the thinking behind it is that if it's an external cue, you're more right, likely to be a little bit more psychomotive, reactive, instinctive. Yep. Whereas if it is something internalized, like a like, uh, uh, coach might be shouting to you, make sure you turn your rear foot when you throw your back hand. It's... Yeah, it's so um, far back in that process. You know, if there were five parts of that process, that's process number one. You know, you to get mm. to five, it takes far too long, and the situation's changed. So, in terms of being reactive, um, you know, an external cue like punch through the back of the target, which I yeah, punch through the target, through the target yeah, is yeah. a better cue than it would be, um, for example, hit the nose. Yeah, punch through the target would be would perhaps be better. Because it's it's further away, it's more um, more distal. I think is some of the words that they use. So uh, yeah, um, I'm, I'm not sure what you meant in terms of the feedback that um, you mentioned about GB coaches. I'm not sure about that. Yeah, I think because one of the main things I got from that was just the simplicity of the coaching. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes 
and I, we've all done it. So I'm not I'm not going to sort of point the finger at anyone because I've done it. But you see coaches um, who, during a bout, you know, they say things like slip, slip the jab and come back with a backhand lead hook, and and then step off and come in, and and they're given so much information, and you think how how on earth are they going to manage mm-hmm. that? You know, not only have they got to take that information in and process it, they've got to actively implement it against a moving opponent who might be good at reading it and also you know the very the variability in the sport is so high that you know you, you, i think things like that they're almost useless and like you were saying punch through the target punch them in the ribs keeping things really simple and just seeing how they get on with that and that's really really helped my coaching i think it was almost a, like a, just a little bit of a, a slap in the face and a reminder to take things back to basics chris daly was always you know he said on our level one kiss keep it simple stupid you know don't give too much information keep it simple because boxing is simple that's it i mean it's 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 incredibly complicated but actually incredibly simple and i know that sounds um, sounds silly but um you know there's so much to actually deal with in that moment under pressure but so the more simple you can make it the better because we want the boxers to be instinctive you know, we want the thinking to be done in the gym and the instinct to be actually taking over. So, um, yeah, absolutely. And the, the, the kiss thing is is it's a principle, isn't it? It's reminding people to keep things simple. So I think if we can be more principle based when, when we're nurturing our boxes rather than breaking everything down into some tiny thousand pieces and expecting the boxers to put that jigsaw back together in a split second. It doesn't, you know, yeah. learning doesn't work that way we've got to make it quite simple so um yeah, do the, you know try and do the thinking in the gym and the dancing and the you know when we're actually competing yeah um and last last of all we're just going to touch on um physical physical mm-hmm. elements so you'll obviously touch on a lot of this with the nature side but there are things we can do in the gym which makes our training physical training more effective and it's having a little bit of an understanding of um the you know the ba- i think the basic energy systems that you mm-hmm. have so your three basic energy systems in your body, your ATP, your glycolytic and your oxidative. Now, I've obviously I've got I've, I'm quite lucky. I've got friends who are personal trainers. Um, I've got uh, Justin Glasgow, who's a good, you know, who, who's one of our coaches in the gym. He's a very good personal trainer. He's got good knowledge. Um, and having a bit having a bit of a knowledge of this will help you in terms of getting your boxers fit and condition for the sport. So those three energy systems, they will all activate when you start walking, I mean, doing anything, but one of them will start to dominate. So ATP is your immediate energy system. You might think of that as you're like your 100 meter sprinter, eight to 10 seconds, they reckon. Um, and then you're in, after that, you're into your glycolytic. Um, that's your sort of um, what they call your short your short term uh, energy system. Um, probably 400 meter runner would be a good parallel mm-hmm. for that one roughly minute to a minute um minute and mm-hmm. a half and then you've got your oxidative which is unlimited time you know your distance runners and things like that so you can train all of those systems but training the same way all the time i think is again poor practice doing the same things so sometimes what we'll do is we'll do an atp system and we'll say to the boys on the bag right you've got to thrash that bag as hard as you can for 10 seconds don't worry about punching light punch as hard as you can and as fast as you can for 10 seconds and then we'll give them 50 seconds rest because you've got to how able to have you've got to be able to have adequate recovery to get that system kicked in again. And I think they say roughly five times the um, the work time is the rest mm-hmm. time. So you know if you work for 10 seconds, 50 seconds rest. That might sound mental to some people, but that's the way to work that system. Sure. Um, 
And then your glycolytic, that might be things like, um, you know, Tabata, French interval training, 30 on 30 off, 20 on 10 off. So you're working a little bit more um, into your endurance systems. So you're doing higher work. It's going to tire you out a lot more. You're not going to be able to keep the power going, but you've just got to keep digging in. And then obviously you've got your oxidative system as well. So, you know, your distance runs, which you need all of them. But if I was to say which one you'd need more, I think it'd be one and two. I think I think oxidative is important. You do need endurance, but boxers aren't endurance athletes. They need an element of it, but the reality is they have rest time. So even if you're boxing for two minutes, you've got a minute off. So you've got to be able to, and you're not always, you know, hell for leather throughout that two minutes. You get little stages where you're sort of sitting back and you're, you're getting time to, you know, recover. So I think one and two would be, you know, I'd work all three. But one and two would be my priority. Um, what, what would your input yep. be on that, mate? How I do you think agree. You know, what are the demands of the sport? Um, at the end of the day, you know, if we're pro boxers, you know, that conversation changes slightly. Um, but we are amateur boxers, boxing for three twos or for three threes. So you're boxing yeah. for six minutes or you're boxing for nine minutes. So let's make the demands reflective of what the actual sport demands of us. So, absolutely. so absolutely, so you're looking at that kind of ATP, CP system, you know, high yield, high power output, you know, because at the end of the day, what is boxing? You've got to hit someone as hard as you can, as fast as you can. That's that's the, mm. the basics and not get hit at the same time. Um, but yes, as you're going into those more, uh, that, you know, that more uh, glycolytic sort of stage where you're breaking that glycogen down, you've got to have a really fast impact over a, a slightly extended period of time, like two minutes, three minutes. You know, you've got to have that high power output over that time. You know, you, you look at people like Boxing Science talk about the red zone a lot, you know, and, and really pushing those buffers, you know, getting that lactic acid out. You know, we want to be, to be fair, trying to train quite often to have lactic acid present in our body so we can actually, uh, our bodies can learn to speak the language of lactic acid. So I often say to the boxers, you need to learn the language of lactic acid. So if, if lactic acid is speaking Russian, you need to be able to speak Russian when you're training. Because if, if someone then comes in the boxing ring when you're competing and they're speaking Russian and you don't understand a word and you're not used to it and you can't have that conversation, you're in trouble. So um, you need to understand these, you know, what that feels like, what, it, what the pressure is like, you know, and your body will make those physiological adaptations. Um, to lactic acid, you know, and, and you actually be able to um, compete at a higher intensity for longer. So, yeah, but this is the problem, though, mate, isn't it? We still do have that element of box kids being sent out for five mile runs. You know, how long does yeah. it take them to do five to run a mile? You know, they might do a mile in, I don't know, six minutes, seven minutes, something like that. Times that by five. It's ridiculous. We're teaching boxers to be slow. Now, there are times when we do need to do long distance runs like pre-season or even recovery, something like that to get a basic or after injury to get a basic um, aerobic base. But are we yeah. teaching our boxers to be slow in a sport that requires us to be as fast and as powerful as possible? You know, and I've had this argument a lot of times with people. Um, there are benefits to long distance running. You know, there is that kind of psychological part in there. You're alone with your thoughts. Don't get me wrong. But if you've yeah. got boxer A and you've got boxer B and one's doing sprints, intervals, short burst stuff, and one's constantly going for five-mile runs, who's going to be the boxer that actually performs on the day? It'll be, that, it'll be the one going for the short burst because that's what the, that's what the sport demands of us. Um, anyway, so, yeah, yeah that's, that's a bit of a, a passion of mine. We've got to understand really what are the demands of the sport, and I don't think we all do quite yet as a no. sport. But I think we're changing. I think there is a bit more standing yeah. out there, and people like um, Boxing Science are doing a good job of getting that information out there, I think, and coach educators. Yeah, definitely. I think to end um, 
th- this part, this section of the podcast as well. Um, on the on the physical side, make your training hard, make it hard. You know, e- even if you're not an expert and you don't have access to the best information, you know, I'd say, you know, make sure the boys go out the gym. They've been thrashed and they are feeling it because one of the things one they're going to get a benefit from that but also and this was a really really good um insight which was also on the edge which was that england cricket documentary um it was that you got to combine you got to combine compassion and hardship but the boys need to feel it when it comes to the physical side and shared hardship brings people together when you've got lads and they're working they're you know they're working their asses off and it's really really difficult at the end of the session you see that little bit of camaraderie that comes mm-hmm. through. Um, and Andrew Strauss said something that was really great. He was the England captain. He said, sometimes the things you hate the most are the things you miss the most <laughs> because it makes you feel alive. And I thought that was a great quote because, and that's true. When you look back and we think about our training, how hard it was, you know, some of us don't box anymore, but you do miss it. You really do miss it. You hate it at the time, but you look back on it with a real fondness. That's a really good point, isn't it? I, I, that's so poignant, mate. Um, yeah, I mean, doing the runs when you go out there and you're running on, you know, Eastbourne Seafront and it's pissing down with rain and windy and, you know, there's no one else about. It, You know, at the time, you, you're like, ugh. But you look back at it and it, it, it couldn't be any more primal. It couldn't be any more sort of beautiful, really, when you look back at it. You know, that whole you versus you, you versus the you versus the universe. Yeah, it's, it's pretty good. And, yeah. and the whole thing about, you know, struggling together, you know, a couple of things that have just jumped into my head. Um, have you seen Band of Brothers? You know, oh, yeah, running up Kurahi, the mountain, yeah, and they hate the drill instructor. Yeah. Don't know which is David Schwimmer, Ross are friends. They hate him, but he brought them together in an inadvertent way. And there's also another um, film I really love. I don't know if you've seen it. It's called Heartbreak Ridge with Clint Eastwood. No, I've heard of it. Get that watch. Yeah. That's a beautiful film, mate. Yeah, again, it's the hard drill sergeant. You know, everyone hates him, but how he brings them together through hardship, you know, and that seems to be a kind of like a, you know, a very, you know, I suppose that's why the military can be very successful you know americans the british forces you know they have a lot of times they have that or that they did have that old school approach and i'm sure they still do but i know, I know the military is really changing um but yeah so there's some really great um nurture points there mate so um yeah if i could jump in with nature now that'd be brilliant yeah, so perfect. um um yeah i remember years ago when i started university in 97 um we had this nature nurture thing and i've never been part of a nature nurture conversation before um uh, and it was quite um it was quite a, a stark one. It was kind of Afro-Caribbeans, you know, as general sportsmen versus, uh, sorry, Afro-Caribbeans, Afro-Americans versus kind of white Europeans. Uh, and yeah. um, everyone in the room, and I think there was probably about 200 students, you know, wet behind the ear, 18-year-old students sort of asked to kind of stand up and say, well, who thinks it's um, nature, as, as in they have that, that innate capacity already physically and who thinks it's more of a nurture and a sociological thing. Uh, I stood up as part of that kind of about 10%, maybe, uh, maybe sort of 10, 15 people stood up in the room and said, well, you know, I grew up in a, in a, in a, um, in a town near Cambridge and um, there was only like three uh, young black lads there and all of them were like super, they were super athletes. You know, they were, they were fantastic what they're doing. So my mind obviously went that way. But, the, but um, and the rest of the room stood up and said, no, it's definitely social. It's, it's more of a society thing. Um, and, you know, as years have gone on, I've, you know, I've read things, I've seen things, I've experienced things in different sports and football and boxing and things like that. And, you know, it has changed my mind. But one thing that definitely leads me to an answer is it depends. 
<laughs> and I, I know, and I know yeah. that's a cop out. You know, if I'm standing here with a pint <laughs> with you, you know, somewhere in a in a pub in Dorset, mate, and I, I throw the it depends at you. Anybody else? Give me a great answer. Yeah, anybody else here, Wigan might be going. Oh, great, here we go. It depends, but but um, it all comes down to sort of um, there are studies and and there's there's are there is experience. So yeah, it's kind of wanted to go through that now. So um, yeah, one book I know we've discussed a lot is David Epstein's The Sport Gene. I'm not sure how old it is now. Maybe ten years old. The Sport Gene, something like that. I think it's 2011 or 2012. Oh, is it? Okay, so nearly got a decade. So. Um, you know, fascinating book. I'm nearly finished with that now. And I've, I've read his other book, Range, as well, which is brilliant. Um, but, um, you know, a lot of the information I take comes from the sport gene. So one thing he talks often quite a lot about is, um, um, you know, uh, African-Americans coming over to America and come over to the Caribbean, etc. You know, and obviously in in certain events like, sprinting um power events speed events um you know like american football and perhaps basketball um you know it, it is not i don't want to say predominantly but there's a lot of african americans african caribbeans in there uh, and one thing which um he was talking about which i found very interesting is that you know there in um in western africa there's a lot of sickle cell anemia uh, um so that's mm. to do with the red blood cells and how um they become sickle cell rather than kind of plate they become kind of like um, almost like folded and less less able to take oxygen around the body. So um, a lot of people became less um, uh, their performance dropped a lot in in more endurance sports. So they became a lot more tired and fatigued. And you know, and it can be fatal in certain in certain issues. And I think it was a, a kind of um, like a evolutionary way of of protecting themselves against malaria in those. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, one. it was a really, really interesting part, and 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 it seems to have a, a you know that kind of effect. So a lot of people with those um, genetics uh, don't really have that much uh, aptitude for um, for those long distance endurance sports. And I'm being very general and vague here, so you know if if, you, if anyone yeah. listening now is an expert in the field, you know you can tell I'm being um, particularly vague here. But you know just want to sort of bring that or signpost that to people. Um, so yeah, evolutionary is a way of making red blood cells sort of less susceptible to malaria. Um, so people, um, so people in that kind of area, you know, with the whole slave triangle moving across over into the um, the Caribbean and into the Americas, etc. It, it, it kind of made some genetic combinations more more explosive and more power based. So shorter term, um, that yep. more kind of um, glycolytic ATP based sort of energy systems. Um, in the in the Caribbean and North America, so I found that quite interesting. Um, I've also just finished a chapter on the, the Kalenjin. I'm not sure if I pronounce that right. Kalenjin, Kalenjin, perhaps um, a, a tribe in Kenya, who actually, but they really boast the high Olympic success in in kind of mid to long distance running. So you know, if you ever turn on a, uh, ever watch a marathon or a long distance event in the Olympics, you know, nine times out of ten, you're always going to see a, a Kenyan doing really really well in, in those events. Um, and there were lots of reasons that he discussed for it. You know, he talked about a lot of the Kalenians being sort of um, um, one of the things that they do was actually stealing, stealing herds off each other. And they would actually run for up to hundreds of miles across the country trying to find different herds to steal uh, and cattle to steal. And how that kind of had an impact on their um, more endurance based, um, um, shall we say, genetics over, over you know, hundreds yeah, and thousands yeah. of years of, of doing this. Um, and I found that really interesting. But one thing and I know we had a discussion about them as well is that um, that kind of knee to ankle ratio that a lot of the, the Kalenjins have um, is a lot longer um, than um, 
perhaps a lot of uh, Europeans. So they've yeah, kind of got yeah, that longer yeah. limb. Um, they've also got very thinner ankles and so less of a weight at the bottom. So I remember him talking about it being a pendulum. So the foot was a pendulum and it was very thick down the bottom. It would take a lot of energy to move that foot. So they wouldn't be able to yeah, get move absolutely. across very... Uh, they wouldn't be able to run long distance. The efficiency kind of goes down. Um, so as, as a kind of result, they had really high VO2 maxes um, and long Achilles tendons. So they had a lot of kind of um, energy that could move. I think I think a narrow pelvis was really important as well, wasn't it? Because in terms of the efficiency of the That's run. right. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's why in some respects women aren't as um, uh, explosive as men in the sport because they yeah. have that wider hips. So, yeah, so they don't have yeah. that propulsion from the hips and you know that whole kinematic chain thing uh here so talk about so yeah. i found that really really interesting and i think you mentioned as well about um uh the, the length of the legs in terms of the, the the surface area of the skin yeah so that was um that was in the that was in epstein's book i i, I forget the name of the zoologist i think it was alan um and it was i think it was alan's principle um Someone correct, can correct me if I've got that wrong, but it was to do with the, um, they noticed, he noticed that the closer you got to the equator, animals tended to have um, large proportions, particularly longer limbs. So he looked at the difference between African elephants mm -hmm. and Indian elephants. African elephants obviously have very, um, very big ears. I think also their limbs are bigger. Um, there were numerous examples. Um, some of them escaped me, but he, they noticed that with um, African athletes as well. So on average, between um, a European and an African, they tend to have longer arms and legs. And that's to do with heat dispersion. So the body acts as a sort of, sort of radiator. So if you imagine, um, you know, people who live in the Arctic or in Siberia, te they tend to be, or I mean, I'm not sure, sure they tend to be, or exclusively, they would be short because it's all about keeping heat in. Because um, you wouldn't survive in an environment where, you know, you're you a big person in, in such a cold such a hostile environment so that was really interesting to understand why that was the case and i think people get scared about these subjects sometimes because they think there's there's almost a and i, I can understand why because there's a there's a fear of you know the eugenics arguments and the ethno-nationalist arguments but i think when you actually understand nature it actually does it actually argues in the opposite because there was a point in epstein's book where he says that the genetic diversity in africa is so large that genetically speaking all white europeans look the same because if you i think it was about 10 to 15,000 years ago the human race emigrated from africa and it's probably probably only several hundred people that left and went out through north africa and started to colonize the rest of the world whereas the rest of the genetic diversity was left in africa and if you look at the difference between africans there is so much i mean i, I know a guy who works in kenya and he just tells me, like you were saying about the, um, can you pronounce that? Kalenians, that I'm name? not sure if I pronounced it correct. Kalenians. Yeah. Yeah, we've probably <laughs> massacred this, haven't we, in terms of the pronunciation. Um, but then there's, I think it was the Kikuyu or the Kahuyu. And he, um, the guy I know was saying that they're very short squat um, and, and large blokes. So even in Kenya, because I think Matthew Saeed in his book Bounce mentioned that even saying that Kenyans are distance runners, is wrong and incorrect it's not them and like you said like he said um as you as you just did it's the kalenjins it's not um kenyans per se it's a very specific subset of kenyans absolutely and and you know that you know it can be a bit of a minefield but it does, yeah like, it doesn't need to if you understand yeah. these kind of principles um so the other the other thing we uh, wanted to bring up was about this uh, 
um, ACTN3 or ACTIN3, the speed. Um, so yes. this is this was quite an interesting one because everyone's look, always looking for that kind of silver bullet, aren't they? They're looking for to actually um, throw their hat into the ring and say, right, if you are, if you have this trait, if you have this genetic, if you have this gene, or you have this kind of genetic um, combination, then you're more likely to be. Um, uh, much more successful in certain sports, you know, and I'll, and I'll try and bring this back to boxing in a moment as well. But um, the actin three speed gene, as it's known as, um, has improvements. If you have this or have this combination with other types of genes, it has improvement in strength and speed, but also um, perhaps conversely and endurance, depending on the actual genotypes. Um, it also has protection from muscle damage. So people, especially if you're doing like eccentric contractions, you know, really extensive contractions, which you do a lot in boxing, um, you're more likely less to be uh, injured. So sporting injuries in general, but also, and I think the, a big thing here to really talk about is greater training adaptation. So you can really adapt. So you have the certain um, genetic combination, then you're more likely when you do a certain training to actually improve quickly than certain other people with a different type of combination of genes. So it gets incredibly complex yeah. as we, we spoke to each other off air um, about all this happens, you know, that it's not just a, you know, a one plus one equals two, you know, there's, there's so many different variables here, but um, I, I found this quite, quite interesting. So, you know, we mentioned earlier about those kind of oxidative, um, oxidative uh, training regimes and, you know, ATP stroke um, CP systems and things like that. Um, but, if you were to look at muscle fibers, you know, generally, you know, you've got that kind of slow twitch fibers, type one fibers, you've got the fast twitch fibers, um, um, which are type two and type two yep. B. So, you know, type two A being the fast twitch, but it has a little bit of, of kind of uh, endurance based and power based. And then the two B is really fast, explosive, you know, pace. So um, I think a lot with this acting gene, um, it has a lot more um, impact depending on on these combinations on those fast twitch so that that real power uh based force production you know which boxing does have of course you know i want to hit you as hard as i can as fast as you can yeah. so perhaps boxers which do have presence of this acting three gene you know are more likely to be successful what do you think yeah yeah um the the university the victoria university in melbourne that study that i quoted you earlier part of that um, is on the actin three gene, and it, there is clearly um, a predominance um, of that gene within athletes who have, you know, um, athletic success. Um, it's hard to say how much that plays its part. If you know, there's, I'm sure because there's so many genes in the body, and like we said, you know, how they interact with each other is very, very complicated. You know, it's nothing that we really know much about, but there's certainly that gene does seem to be predominant, and there's a lot of research into that. Yeah, it's, it's kind of a constant that's always there in the background. Um, for the excelling of, of these physical yeah. traits. Um, it's something I've, I've... Go ahead, mate. Sorry, just to, just, to, just to come in on that quickly as well. I think everyone would you know, agree that there are genetic differences in terms of physicality with, within their gym. You know, just think about the boxers that you have. There's going to be boys that you know, they've, got, they, they've got a slender physique, they're a bit gangly, um, long arms, but then there's other lads who are just, you know, as soon as you train them, they they, they become like bulky, strong, powerful. You know, they've got incredible, um, they've got an incredible physique. So just no, just knowing, just looking at the two, um, at the different lads in the gym, you, you know that yeah. was the case. Absolutely, you know, we're all science. different, we'll, and we'll kind of go on to somatotyping in the middle in a minute. But um, I mean, take me for example. For for those, for anyone who knows me or met me before, or anyone who inspired me. Or 
again. Can't mess you, can we? Well, you know, there can't is no problem in the fence, mate. So um, I'm pretty tall. So, yeah, so um, six foot five, you know, very tall, slim, very, um, very ectomorphic. Um, with me, I was, I, I had a really, really fantastic uh, response to anything endurance based. So I could run all day. I was a little bit of a Forrest Gump. You know, I could go out for long runs and things like that. And, and But when I did try to speed it up, I really struggled. You know, anything. And I wouldn't, I couldn't go in a gym. It's strange because I'm a sports scientist and I'm gym instructor qualified and all this kind of stuff. Um, I hate lifting weights because I don't get a good response to it. It doesn't make me feel good. Whereas some people just feel like, the, you know, they feel like amazing when they're lifting or doing a bench press or a squat or a deadlift or anything. Like that. I, I hate it. I don't like it at all. I don't get a good feeling from it. Yeah. So I wonder if me, for example, has that kind of poor training adaptation because of, of genetics that I might have. It's like I say, I can, I can run like Forrest Gump for ages, but I, I didn't, when I boxed, I think I tired very, very quickly. Not, not because I don't think I didn't train hard enough because I'd train my backside off, but I don't think I had a great training adaptation mm. to anything that was really power-based. Um, you know, a really uh, short-term, high high power base, short duration. Um, what about yourself, mate? Uh, yeah, funny you say that, because I was always someone who had a real good response to training. Um, if I didn't train, I'd, lost, I'd lose fitness, but I'd pack on muscle quite quickly. So I'm, I was someone who relied on athleticism speed. I took up the sport quite late, so I relied on, because um, I was a football player, for many many years so i had quite good feet i was quite strong and quite fast but in terms of my tactical knowledge i had none i didn't really didn't really know the sport didn't really know what i was doing i um, sort of got by and almost winged it and i played rugby as well and did the same thing had no idea what i was doing people could pick me out in the crowd you know a mile off but i was quite fast um and fairly strong so i got by on that but what i noticed is that i'd gas quite quickly so i always said oh, you know what i as soon as I start working, I just feel tired. However, I recover quickly. So I always had that in my head that if I work hard, I could sit back for a little bit and I'd recover. So obviously there's a little bit of a difference there. My, my output wasn't, I always said my output wasn't very good, but my recovery rate was quite quick. So I sort of got to learn my body. And that's quite a, that, a good psychological way. tool to have as a boxer, knowing that you sit on that, that stall for a minute that you're going to be able to go again. Yeah. Yeah, the, you know, it gives you that edge, doesn't yeah. it? Because we all know what it's like when you, even after the first round, you sit down, you go, I'm absolutely bloody knackered here. My legs are gone first round. And you think, oh, oh, yeah, the first battle you ever had. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's horrible. When you think, I've, I've got another two rounds of this. Or, you know, I used to do a lot of four twos back when I was boxing. Um, four twos. Kind of like uh, you know, open class stuff then, yeah. um, and it was really, uh, oh my god, I've got three rounds. This my legs feel like they're gone already. But knowing in your head that you, you can do it, so there's you know, it brings that psychological aspect into yeah. into it as well. So coming back into that somatotyping thing, so um, so somatotyping basically is a, a way of um, just for the listeners of putting people in three classes. You got the kind of let's just say thin, muscular, and fat. Okay, quite simple. So thin being exomorphic, yeah. mesomorphic is kind of that muscular, and endomorphic, endomorphic is that. So thin being you know tall, rangy, gangly. Mesomorphic being uh, big shoulders, thin waist, you know, kind of a triangular shape, and the endomorphic being fat, a bit more of a pear shaped, you know, drop into the bottom. So I did find yeah. a, um, which I was actually looking through today, a, a study from uh, No Kim and Kim in 2014, and, and I'll be brief a bit. I won't go into too much detail, but 23 elite boxers were measured at various points of their bodies uh, against 23 non-athletes. 
uh, and they were kind of divided into four weight classes. So there were lights, light middles, middles and heavyweights. So in general, what the findings were is that uh, the boxers had a much more high proportion of mesomorphic people, right? So the kind of triangular, big shoulders, thin waist, you know, strong muscular content, arrow hips, that kind of thing. Um, yep. And the non-boxers had a lot more endomorphic. I mean, so this is more of a, um, you know, genetical thing. So they had uh, wide hips, um, uh, the, the kind of wide hips, um, shoulders, very pear-shaped, very slow metabolism, hence part of the reason why they're putting on that weight. So I found that reasonably interesting. I mean, I know the sample yep. size is very small. It's only 46 people. Um, but it seems that one thing sort of crept into my mind, and maybe it's an assumption, is that if you're mesomorphic, i.e. big shoulders, strong, lean, um, you know, good core, maybe slightly, you know, strong legs, things like that, that you would go into a combat sport and they found this for a lot of different sports as well, like wrestling and, ju and judo as well. I think, you know, you would never go into it. Mm. Yeah. That makes yeah. Sense. It's like, uh, I can hit hard. I'm, I'm dangerous. I'm aggressive. I probably have a, maybe a little bit more, uh, um, testosterone production. You know, you know, that endocrine system is a bit more geared to being aggressive. Perhaps that puts you into a sport like boxing. Yeah. I don't know why into that group of why I took up boxing. Yeah. But um, I obviously don't in terms of the mesomorph, but, um, you know, me being an, an ectomorph. But I found that quite interesting. You know, if you already have those genetics, that you're more likely to be aggressive and go into a sport like boxing. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, sort of related to that as well, I think, um, touching on personality, anyone who's interested in um, trying to understand well, themselves a little bit, but also the people they coach, I'd recommend... Um, personality by daniel nettle so it's basically like the five factor model um, which goes through um agreeableness conscientiousness extroversion neuroticism and openness now i won't go into too much detail on them at the moment but there is some research around conscientiousness um, and this is also in the um victoria university study and it's there's there's a link we talked about we talked earlier about um in the nurture side mm -hmm. in terms of deliberate practice and how difficult how difficult that can be now i think that if you're good at deliberate practice you're going to be someone who biologically at least partly biologically is conscientious so that falls into two categories of industriousness and like orderliness so you'll have someone and we we do know our boxers and we know that there are lads who work really really hard and there are others who you've just got to keep your eye on absolutely you know i'm sure you have that in your gym as well yeah so i think in term in terms of thinking about that because i think there was another quote by stuart broad who was an england fast bowler in that documentary he said test cricket is 90 percent mental and 10 percent technical and you could argue that with many many elite sports that it's it's the conscientious side and, and the research by the victoria university that i quoted they showed that it, it in the early years at least it was the um it was the athletes that showed the greatest determination greatest levels of concentration that actually went on to succeed there were um athletes that were more talented as youngsters but they fell off because they couldn't they couldn't keep themselves motivated now obviously we can do it we've got to do everything we can i don't want to be sort of fatalistic and say oh you know forget them they're never going to make it they haven't got it in them you know if, if there's the ability you've got to try and work with them you, you can't give up on people but there's definitely a genetic element i think to that that mindset of you know working hard and constantly being out on the road in your own time um, and, sure. And putting everything I mean, yeah, absolutely. Well. With, the, with that genetical side, but th there's also the nurture side to that. Conversely, as well, isn't there? That you know, organising yourself, goal setting, 
you know, psychological skills, they can be taught as well. You know, I, mean, I heard something about a cricketer recently Absolutely. as well um, yeah. on a podcast. I, I can't remember which one it was. Um, I think it was on the Don't Tell Me a Score, Don't Tell Me the Score podcast. Um, talking about, um, I can't remember, I'm not a cricket fan, but one of the guys would always stay and he'd be very, very consistent and he'd, you know, grind teams bat- bowling down because he'd always stay. And he said, I didn't, he said, you were amazing at concentration. He said, no, I wasn't. He said, what I did is I switched off completely. As soon as the, the guy, uh, the bowler then was at the end of the crease about to start his run up, I then completely switched on and paid 100% deliberate attention to what was going on. And then play that and switch yeah, off again. Yeah. So he so taught himself yeah, a, a practical one. way of switching on and switching off. And I think some boxers either switch off and they don't reach their, um, you know, don't reach their potential levels they could be. Or some of them are completely the other end and like you have to save them for themselves. I think maybe the boxers that are, are the more successful ones are the ones that actually train themselves to switch on at the right times because it's such a tense sport, isn't it? You know, can't be on it all the time. And, they, you know, yeah, there's, yeah. there's the whole thing about burnout. Um, so, you know, again, very fluid, very dynamic, this. But can, you know, can we support and understand boxers to actually help them concentrate at the right times, not just all the times? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah um, that's a good point. Okay, so moving along with the uh, the whole nature side of things, um, we were discussing this beforehand as well about actually something called the the ape index, or basically measuring wingspan of the boxers. So if you can imagine, you know, the Vitruvian man, you know, they said with the Vitruvian man that you know the boxers uh, or the the man's arm span measured the same height as the the man as well. So if I'm but if I'm six foot tall, then my arms are yeah. six foot as well. So that would be a, um, an ape index of, of zero, basically. Right? But if my um, arms length or my wingspan was an inch longer, that would be um, an ape index of one. Right? So I had a look and, and had a look at boxers, um, famous boxers, professional boxers, their height versus their wingspan and got their ape index. Really, really interesting. And you know the answer to this. But number one was Sonny Liston. Only so heavyweight, only six foot and a half inches, so just over six foot, but he yeah. had a reach of 84 inches. Right? He had an ape index of 11.5. Moving down to about 15th, which is still really high because it's like a top 15, but you had Thomas Hearns. So you might think, oh, maybe Hearns has probably got really long arms, but in comparison to his height, he was only six foot one. He had a, he had a um, reach of 78 inches, which is six inches less than Sonny Liston, but he was only 0.5 inches taller. So he had an index of plus five. So let me just read off a few for you there. Um, I'm, f- I'm sure some of the uh, listeners would like to hear this. Number two, strangely enough, Hasim Rahman. Six foot two, 82 inches, plus eight on the ape index. Um, Lennox Lewis is fifth, who obviously lost to Rahman and then beat him. Uh, six foot five, so taller, 84 inches. So here was a plus seven index. Number six, Primo Carnera. Six foot six, so a really tall guy. 85 inches, he had a plus seven as well, same as Lewis. Um, Hagler down at eighth, five foot nine, 75 inches, plus six. And like I say, Hearns down uh, at 15th. So, um, you know, us as boxers know that having a longer arm, having longer arms is um, definitely a, a better tool. Uh, but then if you talk about people like, um, yeah, you know, like uh, Mike Tyson, people like that, um, you talk about people like, um, mm. who let's think, uh, Rocky Marciano, you know, really get inside, move the head, wreck people with hooks yep. and things like that. So you know, there's always answers to this problem. There's never 
never hard and fast, but you know, having that that bigger win span is is really important. And, and I know that in the NBA as well, over the years, especially after the last few decades, all the the better NBA players are getting taller, but their wingspan, so their ape index is getting longer. So actually, more successful NBA players yeah, are actually getting yeah. longer arms, mate. So they're able to. Um, block, shoot, rebound, all that kind of stuff a lot more effectively. It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it is really interesting. It sort of goes back to like we were, what we were saying about um, proportion in terms of like limb length and why that was the case in terms of, you know, the, the closer you get to the equator, the longer the limbs are because it's to do with heat dispersion. The body acts as a radiator. So understanding that's quite interesting. It's nothing to do with innate ability. So you'd be you'd be wrong to think that, you know, you've got a lot of champions or you've got a lot of um nba players who you know are african-americans because they there's some innate ability in terms of their athleticism there's just it's just a physical advantage and you can imagine how difficult it would be to, you know good that, that top um i don't I can't remember how many it was now good luck trying to get inside those boxes mm-hmm. you know they have you on the end of their jab wouldn't they non-stop but i think that gives a little bit of um you know an understanding as to you know what's at play um, but you know, there's plenty. Obviously, there's plenty of um, you know European boxers and Eastern European boxers, South American boxers who also have proportionally long arms. But it does tend to be you know um, a genetic yeah, and, trend and of course you know boxing is a weight sport, isn't it? So you know, it's all relative as well. Um, so finally, yeah. um, something I was looking up today again is something called the warrior gene. I know this is very tongue in cheek, you know, and I know that anybody who's got any kind of real knowledge of uh, genetics are going to kind of roll their eyes at this one, but um, but bear with me. So warrior gene, otherwise known as the gambling gene, depression gene or irritability gene, uh, is a variant of a gene called MAO hyphen A. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, Mauer. Um, and it's linked to an underactive prefrontal cortex, the area of the brain which actually inhibits antisocial behavior. So the reason why I kind of looked into this is um, that's kind of linked with like, really impulsive aggression and, and is often very and actually has been found to be very prevalent in kids who are who were abused as, as, as children you know had, didn't have that sort of a correct or fair or um, traditional upbringing um, so the reason like I say well I, I kind of bring this up is we've all had that kid come in the gym who just seems like a ball of aggression do you know what I mean yeah just things right and you and the first thing you do you rub yeah, your hands yeah, yeah. And you know, great i've got like a champion here this kid's got it he just he's, he's fearless he's this that and the other and um you know a lot of times i found that to be true um they do have that kind of genetically um predisposition to being aggressive getting in there and just you almost like put them in two months in and they're hammering your guys had 10 bouts already and you think wow this is this is crazy and i'm sure a lot of boxing coaches now will be thinking yeah i i know exactly what you're talking about but but you could also argue you know for that whole bring it together with an nature nurture thing you know from the nature side of things that's a good thing to have but also from the from the uh the nurture side of things how long will it go for that kid to then suddenly realize that that aggression is important but it's not the ultimate ticket. And then they start actually finding out that I needed to develop my yeah. skill, you know, a little bit like the age, relative age effects, you know, things like that. I needed to develop my skill um, because I couldn't just keep relying on my aggression because I might bang the hell out of the first five or six boxes. And then as soon as I get to boxer number seven, who's got twice as many bouts as me, um, and he's, he's starts pinging me all around the ring. So I can't get in close to him. Then we've got an issue, you know, and then do they have that resilience to be able to, uh, to learn and come back from where they realize that they're not the next best thing. 
Um, so I think we, we often play that, that um, we're always having that problem to deal with in gyms as well. You, you ever had an experience in that? Um, no, personally, not really, but funnily enough, I watched the Mike Tyson documentary a couple of days ago, and that is a perfect example of someone who is very, very impulsive, has, has, doesn't have much self-control. I mean, look at the Holyfield, look at the Holyfield bout, you know, that sort of tells a story, doesn't it? But he was someone who, you know, he was in juvenile detention centre, I think at 12 years old, and he got drafted into boxing. He really, really loved it and he wanted to get into it. But the, the interesting thing with that is that there obviously was some sort of genetic predisposition towards his impulsive behaviour. Whether that was through his upbringing, we're not sure. But it's, what, what the interesting thing was is the effect that Customato had on him. You know, I said to um, Justin Glassball, I was talking to him about the, how I was just amazed. There was that, there was that lad who was you know, 18, 19 years old. He was an animal. He was a dangerous, dangerous man. And he, Customato, you know, frail, frail old man, he had him in his pocket. He really had him in his pocket. He'd do anything that he said. And part of the reason that was, and Tyson really got choked up when he started talking about it, um, he said that he just, he's, you know, he said to me, if you do what I tell you, you'll be great. And he said that when I was sparring and when I was on the bag, he said, brilliant, brilliant. Oh, you're looking great. And he said, he just encouraged me. He complimented me all the time. I'd never had that in my life. And I think that's part of it as well is, you know, if you've got a lad who's come from a tough background, just giving them a little bit of belief and encouragement and saying that, you know, that you, you can become something more than you are really makes someone and um, I think we're, you know, we're really notorious as a someone. sport for being able to do that. You know, I think a lot of coaches as well, um, whether they know the yeah. science oh, yeah. or behind it or not, some of them have that really built-in innate ability to tap into the person at the right time. They just have this, this almost like God-given skill, you know, natural skill. Just trying, I can see how I need to talk to this I kid. Agree. Bang, I, agree, I yeah. want to talk to him, and they get the best out of them. And that's, um, it's almost like a, a really implicit um, gift rather than perhaps something that's, that can be learned. I, I, I agree it can be learned, but some people just have that ability to talk to people at the right time and say the right to the right people. Yeah, they really do. Yeah, watching people. Um, I think uh, Stu, Stu, um, not sure, I'm sorry, um, Stu Pidgeley from Waterside, he's great. I think he's really good with the lads. You know, how he talks and the way he interacts with them, I think he's excellent. And he's got that natural, you know, you asked you if you asked him to quote some science on it, he wouldn't give you any. But he is absolutely superb the way he interacts with the boys. And I think, like you said, like you said, you don't need to know the science in terms of you know it might help you a little bit understand it. But that people have just got that, haven't mm -hmm. they? It's what we'd call the metaphor. It's like the gift of the gab, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. People just does come in different other people, different shapes and you know different shapes and sizes. You know, you look at a Mickey Driscoll. You know, you know kids run through walls from him. And obviously, look at the success England had in internationals. And you can look at other coaches as well, like an Ivan Cobb, um, yeah. who's, who's very different than Mickey, but kids will also run through the, through the walls through him. But he goes about it in different ways. And there's just different ways of, of tapping into people's psyche and brains. And, um, you know, I find it very interesting just being flies on walls, listening to how people coach um, if I'm at a show or even at a gym and just seeing what they do. Um, and not so much about what the technical information is, but it's more about the, the implicit stuff you know the the body language and, and how the boxers almost react to it and you know we're great at doing that and i think we should never forget that as coaches we we, we often yeah. have a great ability as boxing coaches to to do that and some people just you know more so than others listen mate is there anything um, that i haven't asked you at all that yeah, you'd no, like definitely. to discuss before we uh, we finish 
Um, yeah, so I was, I was just, just a couple of points I was thinking. Um, nature, because there's a lot of debate, nature, nurture, nature or nurture. I think really it's a combination of the both, or of the two. You know, it's not one or the other. One might take precedence and it might have a little bit more of an impact. But I think if you're looking, going in looking for an answer, then you're getting it wrong. You've got, to, you've really got to think, you know, what what do, what part do both play? So one one part I was going to say is I don't know if this statistic is still relevant because it's constantly getting updated. But there's there's thirteen thousand nine hundred ninety four boxers on Warrior, twelve thousand seven hundred thirty eight are male, one thousand two hundred fifty five for female. Is would you say that's cultural? Is it biological? Or is it a combination of the two? Well, I'm going to have to sit on the fence and go with both. So, how much? A combination of the two. The sports in its infancy, still, although it's growing, you know, obviously the 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 shift is towards the women. Um, But you know, there's a lot of there's a lot of you know. I don't want to go back to to caveman times and go too primordial on you, but there's a lot of that as well, you know. And you know, testosterone. You know, talk about the whole endocrine system. There's a lot of that kind of stuff in there as well. But um, yeah, I I think it it is that kind of. It depends, and I know a lot of people going, "Oh, come on, just tell me what you think." But that is what I think. It really does depend. I I'd agree. I think I think what would it be 30 years ago i don't know if there even would have been a female boxer so that mm-hmm. shows that it is partly cultural it has to be doesn't it and you know the fact that more women are boxing nowadays than ever before shows you that it's cultural you know having role models does play a part you know you've got the likes of katie taylor who are just they're doing wonders for the sport i think um but i don't think it's ever going to get to 50 50 you know it's never going to be there because i think there are innate characteristics within men and women which play a part we're very cross-wired but I think the stat is if you were to pick a man and a woman um, out of the street and pick who would be the most aggressive, you'd, if you pick the man, you'd be right 60% of the time, which isn't that much, is it? But I think when you're dealing with extremes in terms of a, a combat sport, it might be a little bit, there might be a little bit more um, prevalence towards yeah, the I aggressive think we, you know, there's aggressive a big part of the there. reason why we do that is, is that want to, to be aggressive for whatever reason that might be. And I just finishing off, one, one thing I'd like to think about is, you know, a lot of people do yeah. say, well, my, my father was a boxer. My great my grandfather was a boxer. My great grandfather was a boxer. It's in the blood. Um, I see that as a romantic notion. I, I understand why they're saying mm-hmm. that. You know, you know, physically, is it in the blood? No, is it the genetics? Maybe slightly, um, but ultimately, you know, for me, that doesn't quite fly uh, anymore. The in the blood thing, because you've got to think to yourself, well, was it your great great grandfather who never boxed before? Someone always, someone hadn't boxed before. It's got to have started somewhere. So, you know, why it's romantic and, and things yeah. like that, it's not, I don't, for me, it's not one of those things. I think it does take out the element of the coach, you know, and, and the environment that the, the coach is in or the, where the person's growing up that actually creates the boxer and, and, and creates, um, you know, the reasons why they're being successful as a boxer. Okay, mate. So, uh, hey, listen, it's, it's been absolutely yeah. fantastic. We've been on from the clock's ticking on 78 minutes now. Hopefully, I'm um, Hopefully people stayed with us on the two parts. I don't know, but there's been some there. brilliant information in there. Some, you know, <laughs> and really backed up with some science, uh, really backed up with some studies, um, and and our own opinions as well. So um, hopefully um, people take the conversation for what it is, and maybe it struck a few chords for people. Some agreements, disagreements, but um, for whatever you have agreed with or disagreed with, guys, please put it on social media. Um, 
feel free to message me uh, or feel free to message Ross. And um, yeah, we'd love to um, carry on this conversation because this conversation will never, ever stop. Let's be honest. It's always going to be in every pub after a few pints. Okay, mate. So uh, thanks for your time. I really appreciate it. All the best, mate. Thanks very Take much. Care. Bye-bye. Yeah, thanks very much. Thanks. So there we have it, nature versus nurture. So fantastic conversation there with Ross, um, really insightful guy, um, and I think brought to life a lot of the um, uh, the nurture side of things, and obviously added um, his opinions into the nature side of things as well. And it was a, you know, it, it did feel to me when we're, you know, I'm sat down at my kitchen table and he was at home. It did seem like we're just having a chat over a pint in a pub, although we can't really do that at the moment for obvious reasons. Um, but it, you know, it's one of those things where if you understand these processes a little bit more, and you're never going to even get close to understanding all of it. There's too many factors, you know, for nature and nurture. But just having that conversation with people, even having it with your boxers, I think just gives us a little bit more insight into how we can actually start serving our boxers a little bit more, how we can train them in different ways, you know, be it physically, technical, tactically, psychologically, psychosocial, uh, whatever it might be. So it just gives us that little bit more insight, I think, and um, I think this conversation hopefully signposted or, or shone a spotlight on that as well. So, um, yeah, guys, um, thanks very much for listening. Um, thanks again to Ross, and look forward to speaking to you all soon. Look after yourselves, look after each other, and, um, yeah, see you for our episode number 40 very soon. Cheers, guys. All the best. If you liked this podcast, similar content and discussions can be found at The Box Gathering. The Box Gathering is a social initiative born out of the ashes of the first lockdown in March 2020. We provide a platform where coaches, boxers, officials and boxing enthusiasts can join together online to discuss various boxing topics. It's free to join and upgrade options offer unlimited access to all our live gatherings, campfire videos and coaching resources. Join today at www.theboxgathering.co.uk.